Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside David Corbett. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How are you doing this week, Dave? Doing well. Just uh, carrying along. It's hard to believe that two-thirds of the summer is, is over. Five weeks left in Texas, So, uh, but it's... Uh, it's been great. Yeah, the weather's been nice here and, and, and all is good. Uh, I know there's been a spike that everyone is reading about in Texas, which is unfortunate. Most of that is, is in Houston and Dallas, however. So I really haven't seen much change in, in Colmel County, although the kids' day camp got canceled, but they'll have the overnight camp instead. But all good. How about you? How's New York? Yeah, we're doing pretty well. We're actually gearing up for our first time, extended time out of the house in three and a half months, we're going to go visit my parents, Western Pennsylvania, in a county where they've had a total of 49 cases of coronavirus, about one a day at this point. So looking forward to being able to get a little bit of some fresh air and some time by the water, enjoy some time with my parents. So that'll be good. We're still going to do the show, right? We will still do the show, of course. Yeah, we've got, in fact, we've got our big 4th of July special coming for next week. So I will be lugging my microphone, my headset, and computer along with me. We never take a break from democracy in America today. Amen. All right. Well, this is our third conversation on the pursuit of justice. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about pursuing justice with urgency, wisdom, and charity. Last week, we talked about pursuing justice with persuasion, knowledge, humility, and mercy, And this week, we're going to focus on opportunities for pursuing justice. So let's turn to the headlines now. And probably if you're following the big headlines this week, the headline-grabbing news was mostly about the toppling of various statues and defacing of monuments. We're not going to talk about that directly, although we'll take that up next time in that 4th of July episode. But behind those headlines are these ongoing concerns about the justice of the criminal justice system, and broader concerns, obviously, about racism more generally. And so we want to try to model the pursuit of justice we've been talking about in a conversation surrounding issues of criminal justice reform. So the first step in all that has got to be literacy. We've got to get some facts on the table, understand the basic context in which we're operating. And so what we're going to do is take a look at really two data points over time the crime rate in the United States, as well as the incarceration rate. All of the numbers here are taken from either the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, which is published every year, or the Bureau of Justice Statistics Report on Incarceration, which again is published every year. All the links, as always, for the show can be found in the show notes if you want to follow up on that. So we're going to start the story in 1965. In 1965, President Johnson sent a special message to Congress on crime and the administration of justice. And this is how it began. Crime has become a malignant enemy in America's midst. Since 1940, the crime rate in this country has doubled. It has increased five times as fast as our population since 1958, so seven years before. The message included proposals for new federal action in areas of organized crime, drug control, gun control, and also combating crime in Washington, D.C. But he also, in many ways more importantly, announced the formation 
of a presidential commission on law enforcement and the administration of justice. And this group worked for almost two years, put together a 300-page final report that included more than 200 recommendations, mostly for state and local governments. Now, this is how its final chapter begins, which gives you a flavor of the overall framework with which they were viewing the issue of crime. America can control crime. This report has tried to say how. It has shown that crime flourishes where the conditions of life are the worst, and that therefore the foundation of a national strategy against crime is an unremitting national effort for social justice. Reducing poverty, discrimination, ignorance, disease, and urban blight, and the anger, cynicism, or despair those conditions can inspire is one great step toward reducing crime. So in the common language of this debate, they're focused on what's often called the root causes of crime. Now that report's widely regarded as a watershed moment in modernizing policing and the role of the federal government in working with states and local police departments. But one thing that didn't stop was the increase in the rate of crime. So you notice President Johnson was talking about crime doubling in the previous 25 years. Well, in the next 10 years, it doubled again. And it would continue to increase until it reached an all-time high in 1980, which was almost two and a half times the rate that it had been in 1965. Now, that's the context, obviously, for the election of Ronald Reagan. And at the beginning of the Reagan administration, Reagan, like Johnson, appointed a group to investigate crime. This, in this case, it was the attorney general who was tasked with this particular challenge of looking at the issue of violent crime. Violent crime had grown even faster than crime more generally. It was up 182% since 1965. And the task force made 64 recommendations that focused on what we could say is a, a get tough approach to crime. And for the next four years, from 1980 to 84, crime rate went down a little bit, but then it began to increase. And so by the time Reagan leaves office, it's just a little bit below where it was when he came to office. Now, fast forward a few more years, 1991, as the 92 presidential campaign is getting going, you may recall an obscure Arkansas governor, Bill Clinton, running as a centrist new Democrat that year, wanting to learn from what were seen to be past political mistakes by his Democratic nominee predecessors, also proposed something of a get tough approach to crime on the campaign trail, and then followed through on that in his administration. Now, didn't realize at the time, of course, but in 1991, as that campaign was just getting going, that turned out to be the last major peak of American crime. And since then, 26 of 27 years, the crime rate has declined through presidential administrations, left, right, and center. And in fact, and somewhat ironically, 55 years later, the crime rate is essentially identical to what it was when Johnson gave that report back in 1965. 55 years to go there and back again. So that's basically the story on the crime rate. Now, a more abbreviated version of the story on incarceration, because we've already kind of laid out some of the key chronological points in the sequence. In 65, when President Johnson sent his message to Congress, the incarceration rate was about 108 prisoners per 100,000 people. So in other words, 
about one-tenth of 1% 1 of Americans was in state or federal prison. 10 years later, even though the crime rate had doubled, the incarceration rate was basically the same. It was now 111 rather than 108. However, over the next 12 years, it doubled. And then it doubled again in the, in the 11 years following. So by the time you get to 1998, there's over 400 Americans for every 100,000 that are in prison. And it peaks in 2007 and 2008, over 500. So at that point, about half a percent of Americans are in state or federal prison at any given point in time, which by the way, doesn't include people that are in local jails that are awaiting trial or things of that sort. So the actual number of people incarcerated is, is higher than that. But those are people that are in long-term confinement at a state or federal level, half a percent. So five times what it was in 1965. Now in the last 10 years, even as crime has continued to decline, so has the incarceration rate. And so now it's down about 15% over that period of time, down to a rate overall of 431. So here we are 55 years later, and while the crime rate is the same as it was in 1965, the incarceration rate is four times greater. So those are amazing numbers, uh, Matt. Uh, and I, I think that those numbers really suggest to us why there is a desperate need for criminal justice reform in the United States in the year 2020. That incarceration has increased to that degree and you're still dealing with a crime rate that basically is where it was 55 years ago ought to wake us up to the reality that we're not doing a good job tracking with reality on the issue of crime. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, as we try to put all this together, right, what I want to do is try to take some broad conclusions we can draw from this and then look at a plan for moving forward. So I think the first thing to say is that policymakers react to real world circumstances. And if you look at the laws that are most often blamed, at least the federal laws most often blamed for the problem of mass incarceration. There's two Reagan era laws and one law from the Clinton administration. And those three laws were all passed during the period when the United States had its highest crime rate in history and where the immediate context of those administrations coming into office was a long-standing, significant annual increase in the crime rate. So they weren't creating a problem and looking for a solution. They're responding to real trends, even if we conclude they responded in ways that were regrettable in the long run, or even at the moment could have been foreseen to have consequences that would have been negative consequences. The actual trends, the increase in the crime rate uh, were real. And so there was something more than just the will of political leaders there was popular support. These are popular leaders that were doing things that were popular in the day. Yeah, I think, it, for example, the, the particular case of New York City in the early 1990s, my, my older sister went to the Parsons School of Design for a semester and left because crime was so bad. Uh, my wife uh, went to New York City after graduating from Syracuse University and 1994 and, and always talks about the change between when she first got there and what it became in the early uh, 2000 aughts and, and thereafter. Her favorite politician of all time is Rudy Giuliani for just that fact that there was a serious crime problem in New York City and she was thankful that, that he and others 
leading New York City at that time, reacted to real world circumstances and tried to make a positive change by getting harder on crime. One question, Matt, I, and, and you may not have this in, in the data you uh, drew, drew together this week. What part did uh, drug um, and drug enforcement play in the increase of of uh, people who were incarcerated? Was there a correlation there between uh, tougher drug laws and more people incarcerated? Does that explain the increase or, or only part of it? It's definitely part of it. I think, you know, as you look at the research on this, and obviously there's a variety of different arguments, but, but it seems like the thing that had the longest, most lasting effect were laws that required truth in sentencing and therefore took away some of the discretion that judges were able to otherwise exercise and therefore created longer sentences on average for crimes. And so one of the reasons you have a higher incarceration rate is that people are staying longer. So their term overlaps with somebody else, whereas before they would have been out, now they're not. And so that's, that's been a big driver of this trend. And some of the things that have been happening to roll this back have been to look at diversion type programs that prevent people from going to jail in the first place or make parole more viable option. And so people don't have to serve out the full 20 years they might otherwise serve. So it's actually sentencing length as well as what is and isn't criminal that seems to have been driving this. Um, but I'm, I'm, as much as uh, politicians may react um, rightly to real world circumstances, I imagine that there's the other end of the spectrum too where where they did the opposite, uh, where they overreact, right? If you're talking about four times the incarceration rate, something went wrong along the way, correct? Well, that's just it, right? Because if you look at the numbers, so the increase in the rate of crime leading up to the Reagan administration is substantially less than the increase in the rate of incarceration. So serious crime problem, even greater response in terms of the increased number of people in jail. Exact same story in the Clinton years. Seven years of increased crime rates leading up to the Clinton years and even greater increase in the number of people in prison over the Clinton administration. So they react to real-world circumstances, but they tend to overreact. And, And we're talking about policymakers here, but let's also keep in mind they're reflecting public preferences. It's really the American people in some ways we're talking about. They care about their safety and, and they care about it in ways that lead them perhaps to overreact to perceived or in many cases real threats to that safety. Even if the perception of the threat is rational, their response sometimes mixes the rational and the irrational. Yeah, just to cut in on that point as well, if, if you're someone viewing what's taking place in New York City, however, you live on Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, and you're voting on a budget for your police based upon what you're seeing on national TV, you may vote to militarize your local law enforcement agents in the rural community based upon your vision of the world that's been given to you by uh, ABC World News Tonight. And you can see that in different rural communities across the country that here you are thinking that what's taking place in a very hot spot of crime is taking place in your own backyard. And it's rarely the story of, of, of goodness that's ever shown on television um, broadcasts then and now. Yeah, it's a great point. One of the articles I briefly glanced at this week talked about some polling data 
where people were asked their perceptions of what was happening in terms of violent crime in their area. And they had the data. Uh, you could say, no, it's, it's definitely declining. And, and yet the perception of the people was that it wasn't declining, that they still thought it was increasing. And so there's certainly a place, an important place, for informing the public so that they understand the actual circumstances. Right? And this is a, obviously an important place for statesmanship to refine and enlarge the public view, going back to James Madison and Federalist 10, refine and enlarge the public view so that policy doesn't reflect misconceptions. And yet, again, to go back to the story that we're telling, there's a lot here that is based in reality. And there were real changes in the safety of American people, broadly speaking, during the period when these laws were being passed. Now, the last point on this that I'd want to make before we look at where we go from here is that the best approach to criminal justice is difficult to discern. So let's, let's take sort of a classic account of how this would work. The best approach to crime is by locking up those people that are incorrigible, a certain class of people that are criminals, and doesn't seem like anything you do will change that. Keep them off the streets, lock them up for good, and then threaten really severe punishment to those people who might be deterred by the threat of that. And so that kind of get tough is the way that you deal with crime. So let's, let's take that as our hypothesis and let's run the data through that hypothesis or to test that hypothesis. Well, for a while, it looks pretty good because in the 1960s and 70s, incarceration rate is flat and crime is growing. And so you could say, well, of course, we should be locking up more people. And because we're not locking up the right people, then we've got a problem. Crime is growing. More people should be behind bars. Then Reagan comes to office and takes that get tough approach. And for about 10 years, you've got this kind of flat, uh, not up, not down crime rate. Large increase in incarceration, flat crime rate. Well, you could say, look, it's been growing for, what, 40 years. And we stopped the rise. And we stopped the rise by incarcerating more people. So apparently that confirms that our approach was, was good. And then you can layer on top of that the 17 years from 1991, that second peak to 2008, where you still get more people incarcerated and the crime rate starts to fall. And so here we go again, right? More evidence, more people in jail, less crime. And so you've got 50 years of data that you could look at. And obviously there's a lot of fine points in this, right? But we're just trying to drop broad strokes. You've got a basic hypothesis looking at the data, and it looks like the data is confirming that hypothesis. And then something happens. Then beginning in 2008, the crime rate continues to fall. In fact, the decline accelerates and the incarceration rate begins to fall. And so now we've got a problem, right? Our theory, which worked so well on 50 years of data, now it doesn't seem to work. And so we're going to have to appreciate some complexity. There's more to this than perhaps we had hypothesized when we thought there was this obvious connection between the rate of incarceration and the rate of crime, that the solution to the crime problem was more people in jail. Well, it kind of shows you the power of two different ideologies that I think very much have shaped American public policy in the 20th century. 
on the one hand, you have this progressive form of systemic determinism that believes that the structures play the only role uh, in uh, keeping people down or, or keep keeping them up. And you definitely have seen that in the contemporary debate on criminal justice. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have this conservative form of individualistic determinism, whereby it's all up to the individual to make it or not. And there are certain types of individuals who fall under certain headers who will never make it in life. Uh, you think back to the early 20th century where you were either rugged or you were not a rugged individualist. And there were certain people who were considered to be lazy. This led to a lot of the xenophobia that would keep certain types of ethnicities or races out of the United States uh, in uh, the 19 teens. You, you don't want Italians or Mediterraneans because they'll come over here and they won't work, whereas opposed to Northern types who will. And, and I think that uh, both of these um, uh, systemic, or both of these ideas that there is uh, determinism at play and we just have to come up with this one answer that fits all, uh, get rid of the structure that's here from the progressives or just tell individuals or, or make sure that you get the wrong individuals outside of society and you place the right individuals in charge of society. Uh, both, of those are, uh, both of those are incorrect pursuits of justice because they assume a, to a total view of human nature that is wrong. So let me just give three quick points to tie this together and wrap it up in terms of where we go from here. So number one, I would say recognize that the American people are risk averse when it comes to crime. That, that's a story that we can see here. Why is it that a smaller increase in crime leads to a greater increase in incarceration? The answer is simple, because people are risk averse. They feel insecure and they want to feel secure. That's the first step in, in living any kind of decent life. Now, what's interesting, and we can say this to our, our, our progressive friends here, you talk a lot about security when it comes to welfare or healthcare or things of this sort, and you assume that Americans are risk averse in those areas. Don't be surprised if they're risk averse when it comes to matters of criminal justice, right? It's really the same phenomenon. People want to feel safe and secure. We may not like how that manifests itself. Our libertarian friends are saying, boy, I wish we weren't so risk adverse when it came to economic things. We could have a lot more sensible policies if we cut back on unemployment insurance, social security is such a bad deal. We ought to have private investment. Well, fair enough. But if that's not who we're dealing with, if we have a risk averse population, the first question you have to do is understand who these people are that you're dealing with. And, and so whether you're on the left or on the right, depending on the issue, recognize that you're going to have to more or less take those qualities of the American people for granted and build from there rather than trying to impose some vision of who they should be upon them and try to pol make policy accordingly. I think it also, to me, it, it speaks to the last month and a lot of the protests, many of which were peaceful, many of which were not. But the optics of those protests, if, if the American people are risk averse, what are the optics of those protests going to do for the very thing that those protesters want? If the protesters want X, Y, and Z, and yet all the American people are seeing is a criminal aspect or nature of protests becoming riots, becoming mob rule, then are they actually going to be able to achieve the social justice reforms that they're after? I, I think it, it's actually doing har more harm than good to what they want. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the best way to stop criminal justice reform 
will be to create a context in which the people don't feel safe. Now, the second part of this, I think, is to recognize that there's plenty of room for bipartisan effort on this. This used to be an issue where it was pretty clear where people stood ideologically, Republican, Democrat, but that's just not where it is right now. There's a lot of people left and right who are interested in criminal justice reform and can work together if, if they're given the room to do that and they're given the room to disagree, going back to the arguments we've been making for several weeks, to have different opinions without being accused of having different principles. You know, you saw this last week where Nancy Pelosi says that Republicans were trying to get away with the murder of George Floyd because they didn't agree with the Democratic bill that put an absolute prohibition on chokeholds. Well, if that's the kind of rhetoric that's going to surround the debate, forget about it. How are you going to have any kind of bipartisan progress? What's interesting is that perhaps the most successful bipartisan effort of the entire Trump administration was a bill on criminal justice fall of 2018 called the First Step Act, which obviously suggests more steps ahead, which could easily be pursued if you can maintain a bipartisan consensus on these issues and not immediately go into hyper-partisan mode where a policy difference is being portrayed as a difference in fundamental principle or, or even a, a tendency and desire to commit murder. Well, there's that knee-jerk reaction to either uh, believing this is a systemic structural problem and wanting to continue that narrative, even when you could go across the aisle and get people on board with actual reforms that would lead to the thing you want, or on the other hand, the desire simply to point out that the uh, other individuals who are part of those other groups are always going to be criminals and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's just this, this thing that's coming up again where we look to these ideologies uh, to frame uh, public perception rather than uh, having people work together for public policy solutions that might move us in the right direction. Right. And so my last point would just be very briefly, treat people as real people and watch out for the ideological blinders that can lead you to miss the lessons of experience. You know, it took us a long time for crime to be declining before we began talking in a, in a general broad way about figuring out ways to reduce the prison population. And so if we're blinded by ideology, we're in danger of missing what's happening in the real world and too easily trying to force square pegs into round holes until it's just obvious they won't fit. And meanwhile, opportunities for reform are being missed. Well, I think that's a good opportunity then for us to transition to our required reading. Dave, what have you got for us this week? Well, I have two required readings for this week. Uh, the first, and I warned last week that I would turn to Shakespeare, but this week uh, I will. I'm going to assign measure for measure and say a little bit about it and, and Shakespeare's view of the complexity of the human condition and how uh, ideology, or in this case of uh, this play, uh, the desire for power and power abused um, takes an issue that might have been understood better uh, and uh, uh, turns it to a worse result before someone steps in and saves the piece. The second required reading is um, uh, essay that was a lecture uh, in the book now uh, titled Natural Law and Human Motives by the uh, French thinker Pierre Manent. 
So uh, I'll start, let me start with Shakespeare. And one of the most interesting uh, things about uh, Shakespeare's corpus, if you look at it carefully, is that within each of the plays, there's a threat to the piece. There's something wrong at the beginning of the play. And those plays that turn out to be tragic are plays in which that threat to the piece is not responded to completely or it's responded to incorrectly leading to a, a, a bad result. Comedies, on the other hand, tend to have a protagonist who comes in and they're able to figure out a, a somewhat happy ending. But the nice thing about Shakespeare and what shows you that he's accurate to the human experience is that even within the tragic plays, there's a comedic sense or within the com uh, comedic plays, there's a tragic element. Nothing ends up perfectly tragic or perfectly comedic. <laughs> he always leaves you guessing. Now about Hamlet? Well, <laughs> a lot, lot of bodies on the floor at the end. There's, yeah, there's a lot of blood there, but, but there's still, uh, there is still a, a, a positive outcome by the Nor end of the Norway play. Norway is happy. <laughs> exactly. Now, Measure for Measure is, is set in Vienna. Its leader, Duke Vincentio, doesn't want to rule. So he hands over rule to someone who, at the beginning, you don't know whether or not he knows this individual. We learn later in the play that he does. He hands over rule to a man named Angelo, who then will, uh, like the ideological uh, people we've just mentioned, will, in his quest for power, uh, put forth criminal justice measures that are severe. He will not take each case individually. He will not take humankind individually, but he wants one rule that will be applied to all, even though he knows in his own individual heart that he suffers for many of the same sins that he's punishing others for. Now, it's not until the end of the play where the Duke comes back into the scene. He was always present, kind of overwatching things. His lesson uh, to all is that we each individually have uh, our own strengths and weaknesses. We're all in need of education. And only when we understand the complexity of, of human life and human motivation can we work uh, towards an understanding of why we fall and how we can be redeemed. Now, I think that plays nicely into the second essay that I want to uh, assign for today. And it's, it's rather um, dense and it's French. Uh, but as you know, if you've been listening to the show, uh, I have the moniker Prairie Dog. I'm able to translate uh, French, or at least a good English translation of French uh, into uh, sensible English. Hopefully I can do that. Uh, but track, track with me here. Uh, this is a little bit different than the public policy that's made the first uh, part of our show go. Manent is a, is a teacher that many of my former students at the King's College would know well. I assigned him in my comparative government class. Uh, he wrote a great book called The Metamorphosis of the City. He's written many great books. He's very much interested in modern uh, democratic man and what's happened, especially over the last 400, 500 years. He's interested in the influence that modern political philosophy has had upon uh, politics and has had upon uh, human nature. And He's very much interested in, in this case, in this work, trying to get a new sense as to what human life could look like based upon human nature. So the beginning of this essay, he says something really important uh, to uh, this topic that we've been discussing, the pursuit of justice. He tells us that the human world is a world of action. The human world is a practical world. The human world is naturally or essentially archic. What he means by archic is it's naturally or essentially a matter of ruling. 
the world is divided into those who rule and those who obey. Now, there's a ruling and obedience that's present in every aspect of human life. And that ruling or obeying is not something, something that's necessarily bad, but modern political philosophers made it out to be bad. They suggested that commanders or those who rule always rule in line of, with their own interest, and those who obey do so because they're forced to obey by their betters. Here you think of Machiavelli and his famous idea that the world, human beings, are divided into two humors. Those who want to be great, who are ambitious, who want to rule over others, and those others who want to be ruled well. Well, Manette says that this characterization of human life is dangerous because what it suggests to the human being is that life, instead of properly following rules and commands, is naturally kind of an anarchy, a jungle where individuals are after power or want to be disempowered in a kind way. And it produces a sense of politics in the modern political order uh, that tends towards what he calls the creation of anarchic planes. This idea that at the end of the day, we can't be ruled well uh, by uh, rulers who have come up with good laws and we've, um, we've elected them to represent us to put into place those laws. But everything behind the scenes is this anarchic uh, quest uh, for power. Now, Matt, you're tracking with me here. I know Manent is French, and I know that you're an Arctic wolf. Uh, you, you understand where we're going here with these points. Uh, especially as you're speaking English. Yes, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, I think. And I think one of the things that, that we've really struggled with in recent years is an appreciation of legitimate authority. And, and to see that legitimate authority is actually a foundation for a good life. Um, even as illegitimate authority is a threat to that, we're not very good at distinguishing the legitimate from the illegitimate. And so we sort of throw our hands up in the style of Alan Bloom and the closing of the American mind and say, well, we don't, we can't really distinguish better and worse, high and low. So who cares? Um, we'll just say there's no rules after all and no rightful rule after all. Exactly. So, Archie, properly understood, leads us to an appreciation of rule or justice. And, and, and when we notice you know, where that justice is, is not present, injustice. Whereas anarchy uh, sets us up for an idea where we can never achieve justice, that, that what we're dealing with are various uh, types of uh, might-make-right scenarios. So you're tracking excellently. Thank you, Arctic Wolf. <laughs> so, so what does Manent uh, have to offer uh, as a, as a corrective for this. Well, he suggests in this essay that there is something natural about human behavior that we can turn to and hence use to judge whether things are just or unjust. His first proposition is that every action requires a balancing of three main human motives. The three main motives that move us as human beings are the pleasant, the useful, or the fair, honest, just. These are the three things that he says are present within every human being. Now, every human being might appropriate the pleasant, uh, the useful, or the just differently, but they're found within each of us. And each of us as an agent moved by these motives 
are left with actions or, or, or choose actions that are up to ourselves. We can't choose whether or not we're going to be moved by the motive of the pleasant or the useful or the just, but we can choose what we make of our motives. So you might say, would that even be the case with, with say, a, an Islamic terrorist? Or is that Islamic terrorist uh, moved by a sense of the just or or the pleasant or the useful? And, and Manette would say, of course, that, that individual likewise is moved by these motives. The problem with the Islamic terrorist is that notion of the just is, is a crude and cruel notion. Uh, he is... Um, he has a passion, Manette writes, that's awakened about a certain idea of what the noble or the just is, and that passion exalts him. Uh, but in his, in his enthusiasm, right, he does something that is, that is awful, that is ugly, that is unjust. So look at what Manette now does with this. So his first, um, his first proposition is there's something within us as human beings, these motivations toward the pleasant, towards the useful, towards the just that is present within every human being, regardless of their culture, regardless of whatever it may be, age and so on. That is what is natural and that can form the basis, Manent says, between our life of varying circumstances and a notion of right in natural law where we can judge through criteria, um, through clear kind, uh, criteria, what better or worse human conduct is. So what I'm suggesting, or what Manenta is suggesting here, is that there's not this great chasm between our circumstance and there's a rule of just action. That if we know, right, that various motivations lead us to do certain things, and those motivations can sometimes lead us to do wrong things, sometimes it lead us to do right things, we have a basis upon which to judge. And really, at the end of the day, Manent believes that it's that basis to judge that will lead us back to a way of politics uh, in which we are actors, right? This tendency to believe that life is anarchic, that there's no rule, that people do what they're going to do, and then you just try to you know, maintain your own safety or the safety of your family. That leads us to think of politics as a spectator sport. But when we can begin to understand that there is a human nature, that there are human motivations, and that those motivations ought to be aligned in a good way, then we can get back into the practice of what politics is, which is the practice of political animals actually engaging in action and learning right action from wrong action. Talking about justice, we have this ability to, to reason together toward justice. And then, so let me just give you a quick example because some of this may sound too theoretical and that's exactly what he doesn't want it to be. He wants you to, to recognize that you can partake in this conversation of the pursuit of justice. The example he uses near the end of this essay is the example of the communist regime. Now, if you were to judge the communist regime, the communist regime certainly had an ideal, a Marxist ideal. Manette says, you wouldn't have to go far after landing in a plane in the Soviet Union or Romania or any of these other places to see that communism as an idea of justice had not produced a pleasant result, nor had it produced a useful result. And just the fact, the very fact of the unpleasant nature of communism and the lack of utility within the idea would have further made the case that the notion behind it, the notion of justice behind it, was an incorrect notion. So you see the example in the circumstance, the basis that undercuts the idea. 
And I, yeah, man, I, I think you can think of things in, in, in the contemporary world. Can you think of a, an idea or an ideology that, that says this is what justice is, but if you were to judge it on the basis of how pleasant it was or how useful it was, never mind how just it was, would show it for what it really is. Can you give me an example? Yeah, to me, the one that sticks out is probably the radical environmentalist movement. And you think about some of the the things that are being spoken about as necessary actions to avoid climate change that amount to really taking so much of that which is pleasant, so much of that which is useful away. Look, if that's the only way for the human species to survive, well, I guess that's what we have to do. But, well, you better be sure that that's the case before you demand that we give up so much of what makes our life pleasant and useful in pursuit of this vision or ideal. Well, I think you also see with that movement, the radical environmentalist movement, a desire to take RK away from people. People are no longer ruling over themselves. There'll be an edict that you do X, you do Y, you do Z, no matter whether or not you think it's pleasant or you think it's useful or you think it's just. The decision has been made for you. And I think this is the very point that Manent is, is trying to, to make in, in, in arguing for RK, arguing for human participation and command and obedience. It has to be it has to be something that's explicit. And we may disagree upon this command or that command, but really embracing a political life and embracing the challenge of trying to work through matters of justice is something that is at the very basis of, of a true human and a true uh, flourishing uh, existence. So, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if we were to apply Menent's thoughts to American politics today, he's calling for a, a politics of arche versus anarchy. He's calling for a desire to have a conversation about uh, command and obedience. Uh, he's, calling about, he's calling for active participation. If you were to translate that into uh, politics in 2020, how, how would that, what would that mean for, say, the election coming up here in 2020? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is a reinvigoration of the role of the legislative branch. You know, I think we've all seen the role that the judiciary plays, not just in terms of framing policy. And we've had a number of very important Supreme Court decisions in the last few days. We've got a few more that are expected over the next week or so. But, but in the way that it shapes even the presidential campaign. So the case that was made in 2016, whatever reservations you might have for Donald Trump, if you're a conservative, you've got to vote for him because Supreme Court nominations. And of course, the fact that you had an opening right at that point, I mean, it was a very live debate about who would fill that. Well, now we know who's going to fill it. And we've seen in a very recent case that Neil Gorsuch did not exactly fulfill the expectations of those who put him in that position. And he may not do that in other cases as well. Who knows what's yet to come. So we have this expectation of the Supreme Court winning our arguments for us. We make an appeal to rights, whether well-founded or not, that we say are in the Constitution, whether they're in the Constitution or not. And we prefer that kind of politics to the difficult politics of actually persuading people, which we've been talking about for the last several weeks, persuading people of a certain vision of justice, trying to capture that vision of justice in a piece of legislation, and then building a coalition of people to pass that legislation. That's where we should be putting our energy. That's where we should be putting our emphasis. If we care about ruling and being ruled, then that's the place where that's most directly expressed. 
is in the legislative act and in the debate that surrounds that, the deliberation that surrounds it, the public deliberation and the deliberation in the House and Senate themselves. Wouldn't it be something to have a real debate between senators or representatives on an important issue? Wouldn't it be interesting to have a real public debate on important questions coming out of all our recent concerns about criminal justice, racism, and related issues? No, but instead, I think you're spot on. Instead, we want uh, to elect someone who will put forth judges who will then dominate uh, through the judicial process, and we just will sit there as spectators, hoping our guy won and our set of judges can dominate at least for now. Anyway, I think Manent, uh, it's a great, great essay. It's not an essay you're going to read over lunch, probably one you're going to read over five lunches and probably four or five times. But um, he's a wonderful, wonderful um, political philosopher, someone who I think is trying to do a great thing here. He says he's trying to open a path to practical science or philosophy that we've been cruelly lacking. And I think that's part really of the pursuit of justice that we've been talking about these last two or three weeks. Well, we've got Two more segments to go. We're running long, but stay with us to the end. We want to have a little bit of fun as we wrap up the show. And our first segment we're going to look at is our opening up of the grade book. And so this week, we've decided since summer is moving along, as, as Dave already said, depending on when your summer starts, you know, wherever you are, July is a, a big month for vacation. So we're going to talk about some good vacation options, grade some vacation options for this month ahead. And, you know, we know there's a different context this year with the coronavirus, different options. People are looking for different things to do. So we've got four options we're going to do quick grades on. Number one, visiting the big city. Number two, hit the campgrounds and national parks. Number three, head to the water, beaches or lakes. And number four, staycations. All right. So let's start with the big city, Dave. What about a vacation in New York City? New York City is a great place. Uh, I definitely don't want to get on a plane right now and go to New York City. We're trying to convince our friends from New York City to come down to Austin or San Antonio and visit us in Canyon Lake. So that I'm, I'm going to give uh, New York City right now about <clears throat> D minus. Uh, I'd say that's true also of Dallas, San Antonio, and, and Houston, the big cities around me. I'd, I'd rather not go there right now. I'd, the big city that I'd probably like to so all relative visit is uh, the one we go to pretty much every week. We go to church there in New Braunfels, under 20,000 big city. So that, that's, uh, that's about the, all, all the big city I have in me right now on June 26, 2020. Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, it's amazing that the cheap hotels that are available in New York City. So if you're a bargain hunter, you might be thinking this is the time to go. Things are actually relatively calm there with respect to coronavirus. Of course, a lot of attractions remain closed restaurants you can do outside. So you've got some limitations. But if if your number one item is going somewhere maybe you couldn't otherwise go when it's cheap, this might be the moment for you. So I'm going to give that a, a C minus. I'm a little closer to New York City, a little more sympathy for those poor restauranteurs and others that would love to have you come by. How about hitting the campgrounds and national parks? I just did that yesterday. We went to Garner State Park, about two hours west, and it was amazing. Just a great river, the uh, Rio Frio, and it was just incredible uh, rope swings, and kids had a great time. Uh, it definitely was open air, and there was there were crowds there, 
but I think that they were keeping the um, keeping the numbers down to maybe fifty to seventy five percent capacity. So we had a we had a great day. Most of what we do around here is related to the water, whether it's the Colmau River or the Guadalupe. Uh, we're kind of out and about and, and really taking advantage of that. It sure is hot here too, so you have to do that. So that's an A. I like I connect the you know campgrounds, national parks. My wife won't camp though; she won't even glamp. So I'm gonna stick to day trips. All right, yeah. very good. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Certainly, a lot of the parks are open at least for for camping and hiking and that kind of thing. Maybe the visitor centers aren't open, or if you want to stay in lodges. But if you're willing to be outdoors and just kind of in enjoy that. There's a lot of good opportunities. I think it's probably going to be busier as the summer moves on in some of these places than it otherwise would be, at least as much as it's allowed to be. So if you're somebody who likes to just have you and nature, this may not be the summer for that. But still, I think overall, it's a good choice. I'm going to give that a B. All right. How about then, you've already mentioned water, right? But what about going to the beach, hanging out on a lake? I know you've had a lot of that in your past. What about that for a, a good summer option? I've always been more of a lake person than an ocean person. So I, I give lakes A's, I give lakes and mountains A's, beaches, unless they're California, uh, probably a C. I do, I B to average out the beaches and lakes. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm not really a beach person myself, but we're about to spend a couple of weeks, Lord willing, at my parents' cabin on a lake in Western Pennsylvania. We're really looking forward to that. And that's, that's just my speed. Uh, nice and quiet most of the time. Fourth of July gets a little lively, but that'll be fun too. Get out on the water, take the boat around, maybe do a little bit of kneeboarding or water skiing, that kind of stuff. Um, enjoy some fireworks and all the rest. So looking forward to that. I'm going to give that uh, an A. Uh, I guess if we're doing it with the beaches, probably makes it an A minus. Last option, the staycation. Depends where you're staying. You're probably sick of staying where you are. So you'd probably give a, a staycation an F. I think if I was back in California and we were confined uh, to our condominium, that would be a, an F as well. Uh, but uh, it's all relative on this question anyway. Stay, staying where I am right now is uh, looking at a beautiful sunset uh, with a campfire and, and cornhole. So uh, staycation is, is an A in Canyon Lake. Yeah, I'm definitely have to go low on this. We've been staying for about three and a half months and there hasn't really been any vacation. So I can't really imagine if we were to say, okay, now we're going to take a break from staying here and doing the normal things we're doing to enjoying some break. You know, I just don't think it would happen. I'd still have emails to answer. There'd still be too many things to do. So I can't really imagine actually having vacation in the staycation. So I'm going to go D minus on that one. Uh, I'm very grateful that that's not what we're looking at at this point. We're looking forward to being with my parents, being out there on the water and getting a good real break coming up. Well, we wrap up the show each week with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And the way it works is that we both make a prediction for the, the week to come. And whoever is closer to the mark or gets the prediction right gets to then choose the crystal ball challenge for the following week. So last week, the prediction was we would have more listeners or downloads for the podcast from California plus Texas, uh, Dave's kind of home turf, or Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, which is uh, the area where, where I live and uh, I'm most connected. So we total the numbers up and 
we had a pretty good week. You know, each week we're getting more listeners. So that's been encouraging. And there were 38 downloads from California plus Texas and 26 in the five states that were mine. So if we're slaughter, Matt, that was 38 to 26. I mean, that's, that's a football game where, you know, you pretty much had no chance at the end. Is that correct? Well, hold, hold on. Okay. So if we do a little math here, we total it up. We find there are about 69 million people in the two states that you had and about 46 million in the, in the five states that I had. So let's do this per capita. Per capita, you have, you have 5.4 downloads per 10 million people, and I've got 5.7 downloads. So either way, obviously we're viral, right? When you're, when you're getting that level of listenership, those, those are crazy numbers. Five per 10 million. I mean, we are. Yeah, we're moving the needle. The park. That's right. right. We're obviously moving the needle. But, but on a per capita basis, Northeast beats California plus New York. I'm not buying it. I think many of us in, well, not California, but Texas are out and about. We're getting blamed by the national media for being out and about. So we're not there at our computers. So the level of ease in the Northeast to listen to our show is much greater than in Texas. So I, I still think Texas and California took this one. To be honest, the way we set it up last week, you, you won. But I'm just saying, as we recognized, I had a disadvantage and overcame that in a certain sense. Be that as it may, we're taking up a new challenge for the week to come. From the beginning of the coronavirus shutdowns in March, all the way until June 1st. If you looked at the daily numbers, real clear politics on the betting odds for the presidency, that entire period of time, Donald Trump was ahead of Joe Biden. And most of that time, he had over 50%. Biden was in the 40s. There's a little gap there, imagining something strange would happen and some other candidate might win the presidency. But consistently, from March 17th to June 1st, Donald Trump was ahead, and again, mostly by, say, a margin of six to eight points. Since May 25th, so that's, that's the day, the day that, that George Floyd died and all the events that have followed, for that last month, there has been a 30-point swing in that. So that as of noon today, Joe Biden is now a 58.8% chance of winning and Trump 37.8. So Trump's down about 13 points and Biden's up about 16 points. About a 59% chance it's Biden, about a 38% chance it's Trump. So the question then for the next week, does this trend continue? Week over week, Trump's been down every week for the last month. Will that continue another week or will there begin to be something of a reversal? What do you think, Dave? I think two factors are at play. The numbers will get better for Trump, for President Trump, I should say, if he tweets less and Joe Biden talks more. That to me is the key to reversing these numbers. If, if Joe continues to hibernate and the president continues to tweet, they're probably going to remain the same. But if that if he tweets a little bit less and lets this kind of week heading into July 4th happen and and lets the, uh, I think, a lot of the anti-American sentiment uh, continue to be viewed uh, over the airwaves, then um, his numbers will go up because I don't think any American, especially heading into this week, 
uh, wants uh, the country to be moving in a wrong direction. I think likewise, the, if, if Joe Biden says anything, it's usually something that uh, comes out wrong. Uh, so I, if I was a Trump campaign advisor, I'd be asking uh, Joe to keep it, keep it good. Come out, come out of your basement and, and talk and, and say a little bit more. All right. Well, that's not really a prediction. Okay, let's be fair. So we're looking for a number, Dave. What right. will the numbers be a week from today? The numbers a week from today will be 55 for Biden, 42 for President Trump. So okay. there'll, there'll be a movement in the right direction for President Trump. He'll hopefully tweet less and former vice president will hopefully talk more. Well, I think I'm going to go the opposite direction. I don't expect that Trump will tweet less. Biden may speak more. I'm not sure about that one. But I, I expect we're going to see Donald Trump on Twitter just as much as he desires to be. There doesn't seem to be anyone who's able to control him in that regard. So I think it's going to keep going. I'm going to say that a week from today, it will be 61 for Biden and 35 for Trump. Wow. And yeah. Wow. So several more points in each direction. We are out of time for this week and more than out of time. So we better wrap it up there. Next week, again, we'll be doing a, a 4th of July show and really focus on 4th of July, first to last. We'll be talking about monuments. We'll be talking about the American story. We'll be looking at important 4th of July speeches patriotic songs, and last but certainly not least, the Coney Island hot dog eating contest, all that on deck next week. In the meantime, we thank you for listening to the show. Please be sure to follow us, subscribe, review at Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify and Stitcher. Thanks again. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Mm-hmm.